The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I thought I would use this talk to focus a little bit on Zazen. I know you've been, those of you doing the Dharma Gage Retreat have been um, exploring that and practicing it. <clears throat> and I thought I would bring in some of the teachings from the Zen tradition, drawing from our ancestors, remembering that, you know, what you're experiencing here is a result of our Indian Chinese and Japanese ancestors, and of course there are other schools of uh, Buddhism in other countries, but that's where our lineage, how our lineage traces it down to here. And there was a master named Hong Zhu, who was a Chinese master who, in the 12th century, who was a little bit older than Dogen, so Dogen knew of Hong Zhu. Um, and he was considered one of the great poets, one of the great uh, Zen poets, Dharma teaching poets. And he said, studying the Buddha way, you can clarify your heart, dive into the spirit, and silently wander in contemplation. Without pettiness or weaving hairs to create an obstacle, be magnanimous beyond appearances, splendid and lustrous like the waters moistening autumn noble like the moon, overwhelming the darkness. From the beginning, just beam through all gloom, constantly still and constantly glorious. The stillness is not extinguished by causes. The glory is not marred by shadows. Able to be serene, able to know, here you can walk securely. The jade vessel turns over on its side, at once dispensing energy for you to return, share yourself, and respond to the world. You may embody this like the brightness shining everywhere. And Hongshu, like all Dharma teachers, are speaking from their experience. So think of these teachings as reports from within. Somebody who goes on a, a great inner journey to um, lands, to realms, if we might speak of them that way, that, are, that others have explored. But when we take that inward journey, we're exploring it for the first time. And then they come back and report. And they do that so that we know that there is an experience of ourselves, of our mind, of this life that is available to all of us to be serene, to know, to walk securely, to give us, help us develop faith and help us to build confidence in our own capacity to walk this path. 
so that we can open our minds, open our hearts, so that we can dispense energy, share, respond to the world. How do we do that? How do we do this? So in the Four Noble Truths, did you guys touch on that? So the ter- first two of the Four Noble Truths are really talking about the universal experience of human struggle. Life is dukkha. And there's a reason. It's not just the way the universe is created or the way human beings are created inherently. It's something that we do. And then the third noble truth is that because it's something we engage in actively, consciously or unconsciously, it, that cycle can be interrupted or shifted or dissolved. And then the fourth noble truth, all important, is how? How do we do that? There has to be a path. There has to be something we can apply ourselves to, the ways we can use our mind. Since we're using our mind and our energy and our thoughts and our words all throughout our lives to, in many moments, create some sorrow, are there ways in which we can use those same powerful instruments that we all possess to help free ourselves? And so in in, uh, uh, many, not all, practice schools of Buddhism, zazen or meditation plays a key role, certainly in the Zen tradition. And the character for zazen is interesting because za, has, is a compound character, has a character for person. And then the second character means ground or earth. And the character looks a little bit like a balance and scale. And on either side is a person. One, two. There are two people. Which points to the fact that if we want to find balance or freedom, we can't do it alone. And so we have to find what we might call balance or harmony, both with our self and our our conditioned habitual self and our true self, as well as with our person and other persons. And so Zai is pointing directly at that, a very essential aspect of Buddha Dharma, but also of Zazen. And then Zen... The word Zen is to, means to show or reveal, to illuminate one, that which is unified. And so Zazen is that practice uh, that requires a harmonizing. Master Dogen talk, spoke about harmonizing inner and outer. You know, as we live our lives, we discover things that are true and things that we should do. And when we do those things, life is, works out better. But we don't always do those things. And so it's harmonizing what we know to be true with what we actually do. And that's not always so easy. In fact, in Buddhist practice, I would say for, for most of us, there's a lag between what we discover to be true and what we're able to actualize, to embody. And that's why we train. That's why we practice doing that each day. 
one of the interesting characteristics of the Zen tradition, which is a Zen means jhana or meditation, is that there you don't find in the literature a lot of instruction. <laughs> Curious. Scholars think there might be different reasons for that, but wanna, there are a couple of teachings by Master Dogen that are quite instructional. One of these is Zazengi, which means instructions in Zazen. And he begins by saying, practicing Zen is Zazen. He says they're one. And for Zazen, a quiet place is suitable. Lay out a thick mat. Don't let in drafts or smoke, rain or dew. Protect and maintain the place where you settle your body. There are examples from the past of sitting on a diamond seat and sitting on a flat stone covered with a thick layer of grass. And so he begins by just speaking about the body. How do you make contact with the ground? Person and ground, za. How do we make contact? Well, in a sense, we're in contact all the time, whether we're sitting or standing, walking or lying down, but we're not in balance. <clears throat> and that's one of the things we discover in Zazen, is, in, is that in its simplicity, right? You're just sitting here. We see when we are, turn our attention in and are conscious and deliberate about what we're doing within our meditation, how we haven't yet really made contact with the ground. Which is another way of saying we haven't really made contact with the body and bringing those together. And so he begins with that very simple, seemingly very practical advice, and it is. It's a day or night place of shitting, sitting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Take that where you will. Day or night, the place of sitting should not be dark. <clears throat> it should be kept warm in winter and cool in summer, avoiding the extremes. And so here again, he's pointing to how do we, what are the conditions in which Zazen will be, our Zazen will be conducive, made conducive by our environment, because we're always being influenced by our environment. And while ultimately we practice to be able to find that balance, find that stability, find our, our true nature wherever we are, even in very difficult circumstances, we need to begin, and for a long time, and perhaps forever, to continue to return to places that are conducive, that are settled, that are, that are not in the extremes. And in this, we begin to occupy this body, this body of the Buddha, and begin to cultivate that body of the Buddha, which is dignified and upright and alert and relaxed, at ease, trusting, that is patient, and that is generous. But in the beginning, that's not where, that's not the body most of us find. We can, it can, we can seem very insufficient, unstable, dull, tense, anxious, doubting, impatient. And so in a way, I've often thought about, you know, when you have a lot of spirit or a lot of motivation, you know, then, then we follow along. The body, like, follows along, 
right? Because we have that, that sort of vibrancy, that vitality, but that's not always there. And it's really important, as powerful as those states are, those emotional states, those feeling states, those states of energy and spirit, as powerful as those can be and, in, and encouraging and inspiring, we can't rely on those. Right? It's like if you want to have a meditation practice and you only sit when you want to, chances are, unless you want to consistently, <laughs> chances are that practice will be very fickle. Right? Because we, we've made it dependent on a feeling. And feelings are fickle. They come and go. And so part of the sort of deeper motivation that we try to cultivate and that really is a part of what is training is helping to bring to the surface is a deeper feeling, you might say, a deeper desire. That when a more passing feeling of I'm tired, this isn't convenient, I'm not in the mood, so on, that you can, rather than be led around by that, you can tap into a deeper desire. When I was young and I was playing the flute and I was wanting to get good at it, and I was in school, I was in grade school and then in high school, but I, in grade school I remember coming home and I could hear my friends outside playing and I really wanted to go outside and cut loose with them. But I also really wanted to learn how to play the flute and I thought, it's not going to happen unless I put myself in my room and practice and practice. And so in that moment, I, my, soup, my sort of on, feeling on the surface was to go out and play, which is not a bad thing. But I had a deeper desire that I wanted to to cultivate something that I would have to remember and tap into. And so I'd go in and practice, and then I'd go out and play. (laughs) And so sometimes we are led by our heart or by that spirit or energy, but sometimes that's not there. And so another way of thinking about it is you lead with your body. Put your body on that seat. So maybe you don't feel... In, in the perfect state. That's okay. Put your body, lead with the body, and then your heart and your mind and your spirit will, will follow and, in a sense, catch up. It's one of the values of training and residency. You may have even experienced that this over these last couple of days, where sometimes the Han was sounding and we were all being called into the Zendo and left to your own devices, you would think, eh, I don't know, maybe not. But you came in, because that's the agreement we all make, and you sat on this cushion and you realized, oh, I can do this. The conditions don't have to be perfect. I can be tired, I can be cranky, I can be distracted. And in that, we, our zazen starts to become much more expansive. It starts to free, be free. It's not so dependent upon those passing feelings and sensations. Dogen says, continuing in Zazengi, he says, set aside all involvements and let the myriad things rest. Zazen is not thinking of good. It's not thinking of bad. It's not conscious endeavor. It is not introspection. So setting aside all involvements and letting the myriad things rest is, of course, one of the great challenges of meditation, isn't it? You sit down and you, your mind starts to bring forth all of your Involvements, the things you're interested in, the things you're involved in, the things you have to take care of, the things you might have left hanging, the things that are going to be there when you leave here. 
things we're concerned about or anxious about. And so one of the things we have to develop is the capacity to sit on that seat and bring all of us there and trust that for that 30 minutes or that hour, the world is going to be okay and your world is going to be okay without constantly worrying about it. Because if you think about it, how much of the time we spent in that kind of mental activity about our involvements, which may in and of themselves be important, but the way that we're thinking about them is not helping. We're not actually thinking mindfully or carefully or thoughtfully. The thought processes we're engaging in aren't actually leading to any clarity or even any action. They're just more obsessive. And when we actually notice that, if we, if we sort of look at it and say, is this helping? Oftentimes we'll realize, no, it's not. And sometimes that can really help to release and, and, and come bring all of yourself onto that cushion. Sometimes it's hard to do that because we think by, in doing that we're ignoring or not taking responsibility for things. And so we have to find our way. And then to not think of good and not think of bad. So the Buddha said that our basic impulse, it's biological, but it's also heavily, heavily conditioned, is that we tend to experience everything that appears in our, in our senses, in our perception, in terms of whether we like it or we don't like it. Is it some version of bad or painful or unpleasant, or is it some version of good or pleasant or desirable? And so aversion and grasping, the Buddha said, are our two primary conditioned impulses. And although there is a natural response, right? If you touch something hot, you don't have to think and decide or debate or, you know, argue with yourself on whether to remove your hand, right? Your body knows what to do. But that, that sort of very basic and intelligent response gets compounded with just incessant, um, unnecessary, unhelpful judging and evaluating and comparing. And so again, Zazen is, is that time when, we're, when the revolution begins. When we begin this revolutionary way of being within ourselves and to begin to interrupt those cycles that the Buddha said will just continue forever until something interrupts them, because that's their energy, that's their habit. And so when you sit and things arise, you're focusing on the breath and things arise, and you don't judge them, that basic instruction in Zazen, that is so important, because right there is that practice of, 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 of listening to the Buddha's teaching. It's not aversion, it's not trying to avoid what is unpleasant, but it's not grasping. It's not clinging to what we want. It's just allowing each thing to rise and pass in its own way in each moment. And trusting not only that we can do that, that that's the natural state of your mind, but it's okay to do that. And then he says, do not desire to become a Buddha. So in, in Buddhist practice, which is the middle way, it is filled with these, what I think of these dynamics, these dynamic tensions, good tensions, 
that we are, if we are drawn to Buddhist practice, we want, we are seeking something, right? We don't come into Buddhist practice because we want everything in our life to continue on as it always has been, right? If that's what we want, you don't need this. <laughs> Just carry on. So, <laughs> but if we want change, right, we are seeking something. We desire something. We encounter the Dharma, and here's the Buddha, not only as our teacher, but as this supreme example, and then all of these teachers, our ancestors. And we want that. When I encountered my teacher, there were things that I saw in him that I wanted. I didn't want to be him, but I wanted to find those things within myself. And so how do we hold that desire, those desires, without grasping? Because that's our most reflexive response to a desire, is to cling to it. And so here's a supreme desire to become a Buddha. And Dogen says very clearly, just don't. Don't desire to become a Buddha. At the same time, I say, don't doubt that you are Buddha. So don't grasp at the idea of Buddha, because to desire, to cling to wanting to become a Buddha means we are clinging to an idea. Clinging is always to ideas. You know, if I am if I'm attached to this kutz, because it was my teacher's, and so it has a lot of emotional significance for me, right? And I'm grasping it. And you say, could I look at that? And I say, no, sorry. Right? This is mine. The grasping is not in my hand. It's certainly not in the stick. <laughs> it's in my mind. When sitting zazen, use a round cushion. The cushion should not be placed all the way under the legs, but only under your buttocks. In this way, the cross legs rest on the mat and the backbone is supported with the round cushion. This is the method used by all Buddhas and ancestors for zazen. This is the ancient way. And what, you know, notice how in this teaching, he's interspersing very simple instruction with these very profound teachings. Because they're not two. They're not two. That when we are introduced to this posture, how we hold our body, the mudra, our eyes, what do we do with our mind, we can give instruction in that, right? And we do. You've received it. But we haven't yet told you how to do zazen. We can't do that. You have to discover that. Zazen is not in those instructions, but it's not apart from them. And so in those instructions, unbeknownst to us in the beginning, because it just sounds like simple advice about what to do with my body, is actually very, very profound teachings about how to be in harmony, be unified, which we can only discover over time. And that's why it's important to try and trust these ancient teachings. This is the method used by Buddhas and ancestors for Zazen, going back to the Buddha. In my early years, there were aspects of the posture that I found difficult, keeping my eyes open, the mudra. And when I was sitting on my own, I would think, they're probably not that important. And so I would fudge it. But when I started studying with my teacher, and he would emphasize, and I realized, well, he thinks it's important. 
I trust him. He's my teacher. And so I would take those aspects up again. Realizing that the reason why I decided they weren't important was simply because they were difficult for me. And rather than just acknowledge I'm struggling with this and own that, <laughs> it was easier to just, it doesn't matter, right? Then it's not on me. This ancient way to realize that in this mountain form, there is a wisdom, there is an intelligence that is right here on your seat, and it's ancient. It has been passed down every generation from person to person. That's what makes Buddhism a living tradition. It has lots of teachings, but that's not how it got here. It got here by people practicing together, teachers teaching students, students studying themselves, doing exactly what you've been doing these last few days. And in its simplicity, we begin to discover this profound nature of the human form, our mind, consciousness, thoughts, emotions. And we encounter these teachings, <clears throat> as Hong Zhu was saying, studying the Buddha way, you clarify your heart, you dive into the spirit and silently wander in contemplation, splendid and lustrous, still and constantly glorious. The stillness is not extinguished by causes. Your glory is not marred by shadows. Your dignity, your completeness, your wholeness, your Buddha nature <clears throat> is not diminished when we don't live well. It really, in a sense, has nothing to do with practice. It's just your nature. When you practice, it doesn't get bigger, right? It doesn't come closer because it's not a thing. It's not a location. It's your nature. It's like, how does water move closer to wetness? How does the sky, how could the sky possibly be separated from its boundlessness and spaciousness? Can't be. But we, with our thinking minds, can create a sense of being distant and separate from our basic nature. And so we encounter these teachings that say nothing is broken, as in you, nothing is missing, as in you, yourself. And so in this path, you never move away from where you are. You never come closer. Although you, will have many, you may have many experiences that feel like that, that feel like you're more distant, and that feel like you're coming closer. And often there's a truth to that, and that can be showing us something. That in every moment of practice, we're not, even though change is constant, you are not changing anything essential in yourself. Enlightenment is illuminating what is hidden. You know, it's like if you were born into a room that was very, very dimly lit. You can just make out shapes. And so you see things moving. You can make out this is a person, this is a dog, this is a lamp, this is a bridge. 
but it's dark, it's dim, and so you navigate, but you keep bumping into things, and even when we encounter something, even if we come close, we don't see it clearly. But that's all we know. So we don't know that we're not seeing it clearly. We don't know that it's dim in that room because we have nothing to compare it with. And when we bump into each other because it's dim, right? sometimes we get angry or pissed off. And then in one moment, the light becomes bright and clear. Nothing changes. It's exactly the same place. Everybody's the same. You're the same. The bridge, the lamp, the dog. But now we see. Now we see. And that's probably one of the most difficult things to trust. Right? Because if we were perfect and complete, lacking nothing, the way is perfect like vast space, the faith mind poem says, with no excess and no lack, and the way is you yourself. If that were true, I mean, then why, why am I not experiencing that? Why don't I experience that, if that's my basic nature? Why do I see so many aspects of myself that seem broken or wrong or incomplete or insufficient? I look around, I compare myself to others, I can just I build my case you know, for all that I'm lacking. It's a strong case. Or depending on my proclivity, I might make a case that I'm actually the best one in the room. Right? Either way, it's a very fragile and precarious situation. So if that's our basic nature and the nature of all things, then why do things appear so troubled? The Buddha said, because our mind, our mind sees things this way. It is conditioned to see things this way, and then it creates meaning and stories and reasons. You know, it's not just that when we're sitting and we're letting go of thoughts, it's that within every thought is belief, a view of ourself and of the world, of how things work. Our thoughts are loaded with all kinds of meaning. And that when we experience something without thought, we just pump meaning into it. Right? So you look at somebody and they look at you a certain way, and you don't know what's going on in their mind but we write a story. We interpret that. And we may have, it may be accurate, it may not. But our mind does that impulsively, and we tend to put a lot of stock in that and think it's right, true. And not see how our own mind and consciousness is the storyteller. And every story is told to be engaged, right? You don't want to tell a story that's going to put your audience to sleep. That's not a good story. Right? The good story is the one that pulls you in, keeps you on the edge of the seat. You want to know what happens next, right? Those are the stories we tell. And they pull us in. And they're hard to break that cycle. And so part of, <clears throat> a really important part of what happens in practice is we have to begin to develop more faith in the teachings, this is for Dharma practitioners, 
than in those conditioned patterns. And there is no absolute absolute. And so our perceptions, our views, it's not that they're completely void of any truth. Of course not. I mean, if that were true, we probably would have obliterated ourselves a long time ago. But they're infused with enough and sometimes a tremendous amount of meaning and understanding and perceptions and views that are not true, that are not in accord with the way things are actually working, with what things are. And that's what Buddhism calls delusion. And so there's a, there's a sutra in which a, a lay student of the Buddha came to him and said, look, <clears throat> I mean, he didn't say it quite like that, but <laughs> he said, look, I, you know, I, 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 I study your teachings, I practice them, I'm a sincere practitioner, but I keep seeing myself go back and go back and go back to my old habitual ways. Why? And the Buddha said, because you still believe in them. They still have flavor. So when you go and, and eat from that plate, you get something, right? They're still feeding you something. And that's a very challenging part of practice. And it doesn't just happen because we decide that's not going to work. We have to actually experience <clears throat> how within the things that we grasp at and cling to, right, and that we get some reward from, that as we become closer to ourselves, become more attuned, alive, awake, we begin to see the subtle ways in which there is pain. There is dissatisfaction, there is anxiety, there's dukkha in those very moments of pleasure. And if we're doing that as we're practicing, then at the same time, through our meditation, we're beginning to have experiences of a deeper experience of pleasure, satisfaction, fulfillment, completeness. You know, in my early years, there were so many, so many times that were difficult and where I would wonder, what am I doing? And, you know, what is this? And, and there was nobody to talk. I didn't have, know anybody else who was practicing. I had exactly two books in my Buddhist library because <laughs> that's pretty much all there was. No teacher, no, no sangha, really on my own. And yet, in some way that I couldn't explain, I trusted it. I just trusted it. There was something about it that I felt was true and that held me in those moments where I was struggling, which were plenty. And so it's, it's like, and so where does that come from? Right? I didn't know that it was true. I mean, I couldn't explain why. I didn't have any evidence, really. And so when we, are, when we have an affinity or are drawn to the Dharma, there's already something within us. There's some wisdom, there's some intelligence that is in play that knows. It's like when two strings on a violin are plucked and they're tuned together. You can hear it, right? And when there's discord, you can hear that. And there are all kinds of intervals that are very pleasing, very beautiful, 
But when those strings come into unison, it's as, it's as though the interval disappears. Right? Za. Two. Grounded. Seen. One. So Dogen says, sit solidly and stably in samadhi and think, not thinking. How do you think, not thinking? Non-thinking. This is the art of Zazen. There are teachings, particularly in the Zen tradition, that are intended to mm, rile you up. (laughs) They're not intended to comfort you in the moment or to affirm what you already know. They're intended, in a sense, to startle you. What? What? Think, non-thinking? To precipitate a kind of shift, a revolution, a dis- kind of a disruption, right? In that flow of samsara that will keep flowing until something shifts it. And so that's why the teachings, you encounter teachings that are, can sometimes be maddening, right? Reading Dogen for so many years, I think, why don't you just say what you want to say? <laughs> really, why don't you say what I want you to say? Why don't you make it easy for me? And it took a long time and a lot of study to realize he's saying exactly what he wants to say on the spot, to the point, and in a way that doesn't feed into the ching, 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 ching mind. Oh, I get it. I understand. So then you close the book and go and have dinner. It's over. You got it. There's no disruption. There's no disease. There's no sense of unsettling, of wanting to understand something that I don't yet understand. And so then you have to come in. Sit in samadhi, in your natural state of concentration, and think, non-think, not thinking. How do you think, not thinking? Non-thinking. This is the art of zazen. And it's a very nice way of thinking of zazen. It's an art. It's not a science. It's not a technology. It's not a method. It's alive. In fact, a student asked the great master Zhao Zhou, another Chinese master, what is zazen? What is meditation? He goes, it's not meditation. The student says, well, then what is it? He goes, it's alive. He said, it's alive. It has no fixed form. There are instructions, right? There's, it's not just sit on the cushion and do whatever you want. There's a transmission of what Zazen is. That's what we, has been passed down. That's what we've received. But as I said earlier, but that's the instruction we receive is to get us started. It's not Zazen. And we discover that right away. <laughs> Right? Because as you're sitting there, you can't just apply those instructions and then, you know, like go, go on auto drive. In every moment, you're like discovering, oh, what does it mean to sit upright? What does it mean to be alert? What does it mean to bring my attention to the breath? What does it mean to let go? And not what does it mean, what is the meaning, but what is that? It's alive. He goes further and says, Zazen is not learning to do concentration. 
It is the Dharma gate of ease and joy. It is undefiled practice, enlightenment. He makes those one term, practice enlightenment, rather than practice to enlightenment. That when we practice, we are embodying our basic nature. Why does he say it's, it's not learning to do concentration when the Buddha said there is right, right concentration, the Eightfold Path? Why does he say it's not introspection when we're turning the light around and shining it inward? Because in the moment that we say it's concentration, this vast world, this art, this formless, wondrous practice collapses down into this one thing. Oh, it's concentration. That's what it is. That's why in the Heart Sutra, all of those no's, right? No eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, mind, no realm of sight, no realm of consciousness. Why all these no's? And why not follow that up with all the yeses? No to this, but it is this, it is this, it is this, it is this. Because, those, because it's not those things, because it is not anything, and because to point to anything would reduce it in our minds to that one thing, and that one thing becomes an object, and that object is not you, and now you set out to get it. And so what those teachings are doing is just sort of cutting off as we find ourselves, it's like, oh, this is it, nope, this is it, nope, this is it, nope. So that constant tendency to find something to hold on to. It's like Trungpa Rinpoche said, the bad news is you just got thrown out of an airplane with no parachute. The good news is there's no ground. So we don't need to be searching for a grasp hold. That's just, that's a false thing, right? That's not ultimately going to help us. But we gain that trust and that ability to actually practice and live that way in time, right? Over time. We don't just jump into it and have that kind of trust. And so every time when you see yourself moving towards or grasping to something and you release, that's it. You don't need a parachute. And you just practice in accord with there's no ground. You don't need to hold on to this. Holding on to it itself is an illusion. And then Dogen says, you have gained the great opportunity of having this human form. Do not pass your days and nights in vain. Who would take wasteful delight in the spark from a flintstone? Right? You're out there in the woods. You need to start a fire for warmth. Your life depends upon it. You will not waste that spark from a flintstone. You will guard it carefully. Form and substance are like the dew on the grass, the fortunes of life, like a dart of lightning emptied in an instant, vanished in a flash. All of these teachings that bring impermanence right to our, to our face, let me respectfully remind you, time swiftly passes by, is to help, help us keep facing these basic truths. Because when we don't, everything gets harder and we become more and more anxious when we turn towards them with a path, with understanding. It shifts and we discover joyfulness. 
The jade vessel turns over on its side, at once dispensing energy for you to return. When you're sitting, it's like you're entering into that jade vessel, which is your basic nature, which is the source of all of these wonderful qualities, and opening it up so that it can dispense energy. You know, in the beginning, because our conditioned mind is so active, is so active, is so active, that takes a huge amount of energy, right? Strong emotions take a huge amount of energy. That's why usually when we've had very strong emotions, right, when we're very upset about something, we cry, we cry, right? And then what happens? We're exhausted, right? Which can be a kind of release that can be helpful, but it's also showing us how much how demanding those are. And so in, the, in early stages of practice, it can be difficult because that's still happening. And we're not actually gathering in so much energy yet from bringing our mind together, which is exactly what meditation does. And so we just keep, you know, applying ourselves. And that begins to shift. So that jade vessel turns over, dispensing energy, so we can return, come in, to ourselves deeply and share ourself and respond to the world. Which means yourself and everything. Za. Two. On one ground. And so I hope you can really take advantage of the rest of this day and just give yourself to this practice. And whatever, you know, wherever you are with this, whether you're you know, you have a sense that this maybe is a path for you or whether you're not sure, it's fine. But part of Buddhist practice is wherever we find ourselves in the moment, that's our life, right there. Past is done, the future is an abstract idea. That's our life. And so when we practice entering into that moment, however it appears to us, Remember, letting go of right and wrong, good or bad, like or dislike, just entering into it wholeheartedly, we discover how to live like that. And so to really give yourself to that throughout the rest of this weekend is a great gift. So I'll end with a poem. Within this mountain mudra, there is a light. Within this dignified being, there is a wisdom, never faltering, always present. It is your ancient mirror. If you want to quench your thirst, come down to the river where the water is clear, clear all the way through. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.